Welcome to the SEC Public Procurement Podcast. Today we're discussing institutional cooperation and outstanding issues within it and online conferences. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you're joining us. Thanks so much for tuning in to help me out as my dear co-host decided that he wants to continue discussing in-house. So start like this. <laughs> it's it's but that's the truth, right? We need to be honest, Dylan. It's so true. And actually, I, we don't we I think we might be doing a couple more in the future. So this is not the end. It's just we're, we're only getting started. So if you still want to back out of this podcast, you can. It's like, I feel like I need help. It's like, how much of, of in-house let's I can take? Let's hope people are actually listening because otherwise no one's hearing your cry for help. But uh, anyways, you're into it now. I am into it. it so Absolutely. Fine. No, it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting, of course, topic. I'm just, I'm just joking. But we are continuing our discussion on in-house. More specifically, we're focusing today on some of the outstanding issues within institutionalized cooperation. So uh, we're going to chat today a little bit about a general relevance of, of discussion, continuing discussion on, on in-house. We'll talk about some family relations. We'll talk about some uh, reversed awards and horizontal awards. Um, that's, the, that's the wording or the nomenclature that Willem is, is, is using for those. We'll talk about private capital issues and control elements. So those are our three main um, subheadings of our main um, our main, and I need to say, Willem, that um, I miss our post-conferences discussion. So having a chance to do this podcast together is actually keeping this aspect a little bit alive. So, so it's actually the whole basis for this podcast is being wiped away in the last couple of six, last six months. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we could, if we keep this podcast going. I don't know if we'll have like sufficient because no one, future generations won't even know what this is. Yeah, it's like what you're talking about. Yes, what's oh, this you... old lady and old man talking about on this podcast? <laughs> Or, you know, it will be this thing um, we will, for our dessert today, talk a little bit about online conferences. And, and one aspect of, up there that I want to talk um, is that I received a goodie bag before uh, one of these online conferences that I participate. So maybe that's what's going to happen. You know, people were going to just sort of have like a home delivery of dinners and talk to each other online after some sort of workshop. Who knows? Actually, sounds that sounds swell. I mean, I'm I'm yet to receive my parcel that you sent to me, but we'll get to that maybe when we get to the dessert. Do you want to get started on main? Yes, let's do that, please, um, Willem. If you could just if you could just sort of start us off. Why why you? If I'm going to be you know a devil's advocate, and I would want to be a very skeptical, why we need to continue to discuss institutional cooperation? Did we cover already everything? What what is there still to to discuss? Um, well. Good question, Marta. Um, no, uh, so I think in episode five, if I'm correct, we discussed non-institutionalized cooperation and we talked about some of the intricacies of uh, Stadthalle and uh, what is an ancillary activity. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please feel free to do that. Um, but I think 
the the, the most um, or at least the the exemption, the institutionalized exemption for, by which public authorities can cooperate together outside of a duty to tender has been discussed since ninety nine, since Tegel started, um, and it's uh, it's still causing difficulties because it is so closely related to the distinction between what we deem private and what we think is public and how we regulate that one within public procurement law, but also, and this I think always makes it a very heated discussion and continuously relevant is um, there's different perspectives, right? One, you could look at it from a contractor perspective is the the contractor that loses the work that uh, was initially tendered out or contracted out, I should say, um, clearly uh, can be surprised or disgruntled by the fact that all of a sudden a um, uh, a government decides to set up a separate legal entity and to, to do it themselves, right? So this, this causes friction. Um, and I think friction always makes things more interesting. For sure. And I think that uh, particularly in this area, it seems to be... Uh main subject matter very often is the waste collection, right? And we see time and time again that um, on the one hand side, I think it's 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 quite problematic or it's quite problematic. I can see why private companies can feel a very, in, a, in, a, in a way um, treated badly if they've been uh, on the competitive market, they've been bidding, they've been winning contracts, and then suddenly that work is taking away. Um, and there is, of course, always uh, a follow-up criticism at times, if, if grounded or not, uh, whether the public authorities are actually able to provide the same level of quality. And the third layer of that, why I do think that we will see even more and more of this is because um, that particular sector of waste collection, I think it's also really developing in context of the circular economy, uh, sustainability, climate change, right? We want to improve it. We want to uh, make sure that it's really renewable in, in the best possible way. You uh, used the, the waste, for example, in Sweden and Denmark, very extensively used for creation of clean energy, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so I think that um, as the amount of case law show us, uh, I don't think that it will be anytime soon done with self-organization and, and, and in-house. There's a certain <laughs> sadness in your voice when it comes to that, uh, <laughs> when, to what you just said. But no, you're right. And I think um, clearly this goes for every public procurement case out there is that it's generally initiated by a disgruntled uh, competitor. Um, I think what's interesting here as well is that what you see in um, uh, with Article 12 from the directive, because that's what we're talking about today, um, or at least the, f the first two subsections or paragraphs of one to three, because four was uh, is the other exemption, um, is there's also a clear rule of law issue attached to it, right? Um, uh, or at least perhaps I should phrase it differently. It's not clear, but it's, it, it's in the background, right? So if you... Uh, interpret these exemptions very uh, extensively. Question then arises, does that in fact enable uh, uh, corruption or does that uh, cause issues with the rule of law? Mm. Um, because if you provide a very broad scope for the, this exemption, you can leave it out of the, the tendering rules, which is supposed to create transparency, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, I think, in the background, um, and I think for for some member states, that's a genuine issue, uh, and that's also why very often they implemented this a bit more strictly, right? Than uh, say 
the the eighty percent criterion uh, was then implemented as ninety percent, just to keep to make sure that these entities stick to what they're supposed to be doing. It's quite a restrictive approach and interpretation. Yes, right. for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think one more time, one more element that I wanted to hear your opinion because you, you know, work with this for quite a long time. Um, whenever I look into aspects of in-house, whenever I l- read also some of the newest cases, I have a feeling that also this is very much reminds me actually uh, interrelation or stepping into the area of corporate law. Actually, now, I wonder if if when you worked on it, did you did you at all looked into or see similarities or actually some sort of conflicts because this is very much about you know us starting to dictate how companies are to be uh, structured right a lot about voting powers vetoes who uh, appoints who etc etc yeah so so uh, you're on the money here i think the same reasoning also goes for admin law so Mm -hmm. the directive clearly states that it can can concern uh, legal uh, persons governed by private or public law and in, on, in both cases, um, the, the, the criteria of Article 12 clearly limit how or what options you can use under national law. Mm. Because in order to establish control, in order to ensure that the um, uh, that control is actually effective, you need to use certain options that clearly exist under national law, but others perhaps can't be used or you, you can't not use them simply because you have to fulfill these uh, these requirements. Okay. And I think this is also where in, in academia, a, a lot of the uh, critique has uh, uh, been sparked is the question, should public procurement law even influence these aspects, right? Should it not simply uh, only concern a, a discussion about control and not about the, the activities that the, an, an entity like this uh, uh, performs, should we not actually allow for private capital as the third criterion of this exemption, instead of limiting it uh, to a great, uh, great extent? Great Particularly extent. When, you, mm. when you talk about circular economy just then, and energy transitions, often such cooperation is necessary. And it's uh, actually, in the Netherlands, it's, it's even a policy standpoint that you have to include this yeah. In uh, in types of cooperation, so there's a cooperation between governments, between private parties, between energy producing companies, and all this. So in in this uh, this network, this ecosystem of of players in which are all aiming to 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 overcome climate change and and establish a certain type of energy transition, mm-hmm. um, which would then be an argument to say, yeah, well, these 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 criteria are too limiting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we, because we, we, we need to move on to our issue, the last comment um, that I wanted to make in this regard is, um, that, you know, I within my PhD some years ago, when I looked into in-house question was specifically in the context of procuring public-private partnerships. And up there, I mainly was focusing on institutionalized public-private partnerships. So this is sort of, you know, the idea of what you mentioned, that you really, there are areas in which you really want to collaborate with um, private sector and how to actually procure that. And I think one of the challenges here is also that, well, to actually procure it is extremely complicated because if you specifically look on the aspects of establishing a company or any type of entrepreneurial um, 
sort of venture between the partners, uh, you're quite limited within the procurement process about what you can ask because you need to focus really on what is the main purpose being, you know, whatever the, the subject matter of the activity is to be. But for you to actually establish a, a company, there might be a lot of questions and a lot of information that you need that somehow are limited due to a principle of proportionality and, 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 and so on within the procurement, um, how, how to actually procure that. So I think there is a lot of really interesting aspect of that. But to focus on the institutionalized um, in-house, institutionalized cooperation, uh, the first issue is I, I, I kind of see a issue of family relations, so you 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 refer to reversed awards, horizontal awards. I kind of like this reference also that that we find in literature of two mother daughter company, brother sister. So so can you tell us a little bit more where we stand in, in regards to this family relations of in house? So I mean we can extend it to aunties and uncles as well, right? This is what the commission once uh, uh, launched or nephews. Yeah. Um, uh, so. Just a brief introduction. We're in Article 12, Section 2 right now. And what does that subparagraph contain? It's in addition to what the court had uh, allowed for over the years between 99 and 2014. What this paragraph contains is exemptions that add on to a or build upon a existing in institutionalized cooperation. So what is an institutionalized exemption that allows that cooperation is it needs to be control, needs to 80% uh, uh, of the activities by the controlled legal entity need to be performed for those entities that control it or one entity. And there can't be any private capital uh, participation unless, right? So that's the start. That's step one. Step two is subparagraph two in which you have these additional um, uh, expansions that build on this, this exemption that I just described. So reverse awards, what does that mean? It basically means that the controlling entity receives a contract from the entity that is being controlled. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we could say the daughter awards the contract to the mother, actually. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the step one was the mother giving the daughter a contract. Absolutely. Horizontal awards is a scenario that was also explored in Datenlotsen, the case before the Court of Justice, um, concerns a situation where two daughter entities are actually awarding a contract to each other and they're being controlled by the same mother. Right? I always, I, I tend to have a little chuckle inside when we talk about controlling mothers, but that's a whole yeah. different story. Um, uh, and one extra addition is that this type of um, control can also, uh, and this is not paragraph two, um, it can also occur via holding structure, right? Control is that you can also have that. But this was added as well in the directive. Um, now, one of the pressing issues, and that's why I wanted to discuss it today, and I'd be very interested to hear from other member states, actually, so if there's any listeners from other member states in which this discussion has been sparked, is the question, can you actually uh, uh, use this option of reversed awards, so daughter to mother, or horizontal awards, uh, daughter to daughter, uh, in a situation of joint control? Or is it only single control? Exactly. So th this is a question that's been very pressing in the Dutch uh, Dutch context, in which there's been a reorganization of uh, of tasks. Um, and um, say, for instance, um, uh, first the municipalities were in charge of fire services. Now it's a security region 
which gains some competences. And that security region would like to use the uh, maintenance depot of the municipality. So it would then need to give back uh, a contract to the mother. However, there's all these municipalities that cooperate in this security region. So it's a, a situation of joint control. Now, what's interesting is there's a couple of, I think EU law leaves it open, or at least there's some ambigu ambiguity uh, mm -hmm. in the directive here. The Dutch legislator said this can't be, or this is not the case, because they actually split up this article. So there's one article in the Dutch Ambestedingswet uh, 2012, so the Dutch Public Procurement Act mm -hmm. 2012, that says this is a scenario for joint control and there's one for singular control. And those ones are under single control mentioned. Exactly. So they're okay. only included. Now, there's some people that have argued, well, in fact, uh, subparagraph two of Article 12 refers to one. And that is such a broad condition. Uh, it's the start of this article that you could also say it falls under uh, uh, that it also applies to joint control. However, joint control is then defined in sub three. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't refer to sub three. So I think that's a pretty strong argument to say, well, it doesn't actually apply to joint control, particularly because it also doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't do that in the directive. And how you feel about it in context of uh, principles to, to come in, you know, as a, as a helping hand. Because I just wonder, you know, ultimately what has been from the very beginning the purpose of in-house versus right now, it seems as, as, as we laugh a little bit about it, that this family relations keep on growing and growing and growing. Yep. Um, so I think that, you know, from perspectives of, of, of transparency principles, of um, open competition, et cetera, um, are, do, do you think that those principles are here, help, they are not really a problem or do you see that they may actually introduce some type of limitation for, you know, broadening the concept and saying actually joint control could be also here? Yeah, so the, I think it's a, a question of, of interpretation, right? So what I was just saying is pretty grammatical. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you do a kind of a teleological approach where you look at the purpose of this article, or perhaps broader, like I think what you're inferring broader mm -hmm. into the directive, is some have said, well, actually, um, this article is a massive expansion. The preamble states that we need an expansion, and that's, that's important. Um, and that <clears throat> that means that we should also expand it. On the other hand, we're still faced with a situation where we're supposed to interpret exemptions narrowly according to the court as a sort of a, a, a standard rule of thumb, right, of interpretation. Um, uh, the question, I think, uh, is that there's no uh, clear guidance except that I don't think it is in there, right? So... Like you say, we could make it bigger and start looking for other limitations, but I think the article itself already provides enough limitations, mm. even though, granted, it is it is ambiguous. And at the time when I was looking into this, I looked at the, 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 the up and downs of the legislative process, and it was proposed to include it explicitly, but it didn't make it in the final wording, right? Now, yeah. I, I know lawyers tend to use this as arguments before the courts, and courts generally responded, well, I mean the fact that it's not in there doesn't mean that we can't read into it, right? Also, the reverse sure. way, something that is in there doesn't necessarily mean that it it, it shouldn't have been in there, right? Yeah. So 
in a way, this is a, it's a tricky discussion, uh, or at least leading to some discussions in the Netherlands. I think it's also... Standpoint is, uh, is, sorry. Uh, no, no, sorry. The safe standpoint is to, to go for... Uh, it is, uh, it's not possible. Uh, perhaps a little bit more leeway is given to a situation where they say it is possible. Mm. Yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, it's also ultimately a lot of questions within in-house is about this self-organization that is ultimately really much connected with national systems. And, and I think argument here is also of subsidiarity, right, of saying, well, let in, in, in a lot of these areas, just let states decide you, you cannot go that far into regulating these elements. But and the second issue for us today um, that I'm particularly interested really is um, how how the concept of private capital involvement within this institutional cooperation um, has been developing really over the years, over the case that we had um, Stadthalle some time ago, <laughs> quite straightforward said, no private capital. Um, and right now we have uh, some elements that are um, a little bit ambiguous, I would say, in, in context of this private capital, of this broadening of the family of in-house. Yeah, so, I mean, th there was a great case, Stadthalle, right? It's a, it's a small town close to Leipzig in the eastern part of Germany. I always had this this thought of like visiting all these cities that like, are relevant in EU case law. It's a, I think probably the nerdiest trip we could ever undertake. But if you're up for it, we could do a road trip. Road trip. Road trip. Um, I I can't wait to look at what parking Brixen looks like and how that parking <laughs> lot actually. That's the whole side uh, side story. But it is you know it is super cool. So we also in Denmark is this Storbelt, right? This really huge uh, case about yeah. uh, discrimination. Yeah. One of really ground uh, basis uh, of of a lot of of a lot of interpretation of principle. And it's super cool whenever you have a chance to ride through it. And it's like, yep, I know all about yeah. that. <laughs> uh, classic. Um, so private capital, yeah, you're right. So it started with Stadthalle. The court basically said you can't give a competitive advantage to an entity that was not tendered. So you can't have private capital in a legal separate entity that gets a free public contract because it's exempted from a duty to tender. Um, now we have this uh, this additional aspect in the uh, in the directive that was added. That basically said that it's it can't be a direct private uh, capital participation with some exemptions. So there's like an unless clause, unless it concerns non-controlling, non-blocking forms of private capital participation, right? So kind of refers to the control criterion. So think of minority shareholdings, no vetoes, etc. It needs to be required by national legislative provisions. And this is a, tri a tricky one because in the Netherlands, we don't have national legislative provisions obliging you to take in private capital. I've been told that in France, this differs and this is some, some sort of uh, social security organizations that do have this aspect in which you need to include the private uh, uh, market. So that's a massive limitation, which I think is often overseen. And then it needs to be in conformity with the treaties. And oh, this is, I mean, when it, whenever some legislator has dropped this in, I don't actually know what is it, what was intended. Um, I think this refers to the entire treaty, right? So you would have to take in the competition rules, state aid law, also free movement. And this kind of creates a kind of a predicament because if it also includes free movement, does that mean that we would need to 
organize some sort of competitive procedure based on the free movement rules to include this type of private capital. Mm -hmm. So in this regard, I also have one element to follow your line of thought. Another addition that we have uh, from from more recent case law is this CSRL case that also in context of capital introduced this, this, and I quote right now, the real prospect in short term, right? This sort of being introduced to the to the equation. And I wanted, if you could elaborate for for our listeners a little bit more on this concept, because I also wanted to ask about, you know, what's a real, where where is the real uh, practical application of that, um, of of, of that term? Yeah, so this would would require, um, so say if you would include in the statutes of, uh, say, an entity under private law, um, uh, you would say, well, um, in the future, we will include private capital. The court has basically said in this Italian case, you refer to the SIA case, basically uh, that that would be allowed because there's no real short-term prospect. Um, but if you would state, and this kind of links to Commission Austria, I would say, or the Merdling case, as has been referred to, um, it would say that if there's a clear date in the future, that it wouldn't be allowed, right? <laughs> So, so up here, you know, exactly my question is, okay, so we include in this, there is no real prospects soon, but at some point we want to open it up. But isn't it that the moment that we open it up, then at some point in a more realistic way, then we, yeah. then we sort of in square one. Yeah, for sure. Then so what's the to... point, right? Because I think this is where, where the case is lost on me a little bit. And I just wonder if I don't see something uh, that you may enlighten me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. Um, I don't know if I can bring enlightenment here. It's it's the court testing it at a certain time, and mm -hmm. if there's no issues in the in the in the foreseeable future, no problem, right? Mm -hmm. So the court can't say, well, maybe if then uh, the, the the in the future on an in an undetermined date, the um, uh, private capital is opened up to third parties. Uh, if you then tender it, it's fine, right? Yeah, then fair in enough. The said scenario, mm. you could still tender yeah. it. So. I think this is a, a very practical way of the court dealing with these issues, right? It just tests the moment something is happening. Yeah. Um, and in the Merdling case, this obviously then led the court to look at, well, you reorganized a lot of stuff very quickly after you awarded the contract. So that was an issue and we need to take that into account. So there was a, yeah, I mean, and I think in this in the SIA case, that's, uh, uh, I think it's more of a practical solution. Um I think that's still uh, uh, separate from this question that I raised before about, um, yeah, should you then tender it, this private capital, because it says in conformity with the treaties, because it would make this whole exemption pretty much useless, or the, because basically, if you then still need to tender it, you still can't work with the person you would like to work with, right? So the, this exemption, even though this is in the remit of public procurement law and capital would not fall under... Uh, this directive, um, you would still be facing the same uh, same issue. And to round it off, I mean, you would still need to exert a decisive influence over the controlled legal person. Um, oh, sorry, you cannot, and I have to correct myself, um, you cannot exert a decisive influence over the controlled legal person. So the, the limitation on the type of participation very much links up with the control criterion. Mm -hmm. And to, to bring it back to the, the paragraph number two, when we talk about family relations, 
What's unclear in the directive now is that this link, so it, it basically, paragraph two introduces um, uh, both aspects, right? So it, it first in this terribly long sentence, it introduces um, award, reversed awards and then horizontal rewards. Then there's a comma and it says, provided that there's no direct, uh, and then it does the, the direct private capital participation. And the question is, does that mean that it only applies to those sister-to-sister -sister awards? Or does this also mean that it applies to reversed awards? And then it would have an effect on, the fact that on, on reversed awards to bodies governed by public law, which could have this type of private participation in them. Mm. And then when we talk about this, this sort of ties up because you mentioned the issue of control also up here. And that ties up to our three, third uh, issue um, within our main course today. And that is uh, the, the, the question of control and whether the control actually requires shares. Uh, so we, we had some case law, of course, within the question of control and share. Shares in Cabo Termo, we heard that you holding actually and owning all the shares by itself is not really uh, proving that you have a control. And we have also some new developments from uh, from the cases from 2019. So where we stand today in, in context of requiring, that, does the control require shares in your opinion? Well, I thought it did, or at least I thought it was a relevant aspect. Looking at the cases that you just mentioned, or if we look at the Undis case, an Italian case, in which we, uh, I mean, this was a case in which the question arose, okay, so you've got an institutionalized corporation. Uh, there's a couple of controlling entities involved that control a separate legal entity. How does it work with the activities criterion? So other public entities, are they considered to be... Uh, market entities that go into the 20% or are they, because they're public and they don't have a shareholding, still um, entities that fall within the 80% of the activities criteria? Now, the court then said, no, they're part of the 20, right? Because they don't have a shareholding. Yeah. Um, now, this more recent case um, from 18 June 2020, and I'm going to be, my finish is not <laughs> as good as it used to be. So this is the Porin Kupunki case. Um, Kirsi, our colleague from uh, from Finland, might might kill us for this pronunciation, but it's case three two eight slash one nine. So maybe that will save my my terrible pronunciation. And in this case, I mean, we I think in a later episode we could probably discuss the transfer of competences and responsibilities a bit more in depth. Mm, what's the relation here, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So basically, what happens here is very briefly said is that there's a whole. Um, uh, quite confusing uh, set of, of, of transfers that occur, so transfers of competences, and they end up with the city of Porin. And then this city um, uh, uh, awards a contract to uh, a separate legal entity that in which it has 100% of its shares. Then the court then says, well, in fact, this is still a case of joint control. Um, so... Joint control is then exercised by the city, who owns 100% of the shares, and by the entities that uh, reshuffled those competences to mm -hmm. that city. Um, so this would then say, well, then you don't need shares. And then the court kind of refers to the agreements that were closed and that were still checks and balances. But the question then arises, so do we not need shares, right? Now, it could be that 
this is the case because of specific spinach. 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 Finish. <laughs> Talking about food. Talking about food. <laughs> uh, Finnish legislation and that this is still would still require it. Uh, but in many member states, if you don't have shares, particularly in entities uh, governed by private law, it means that you can't have veto rights. It means that control you don't have and control, so, so yeah. it would be very hard to establish it. They're very much connected, right? I think we'll be talking about this a bit more in the future, also about the interrelations between transfers of competences and, and in-house responsibilities and this yeah. type of in-house. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So that's just the last thing that I kind of wanted to highlight. I mean, there's more discussion possible about this uh, uh, exemption, so you're not rid of it yet. Uh, Willem can talk next 10 episodes of the transfer of in-house, but I'm going to stop you here, dear. Um, <laughs> To summarize, we're within our main today, main course. Uh, Willem shared with us some some great thoughts on three issues. Uh, first, we were talking about the family relations, so so-called reverse reverse awards or daughter awarding contracts to mother, horizontal awards, um, the sisters contracts between sisters, and the issues of holding control within that. Uh, can that control be held singularly or jointly? The issue is private capital, how this concept has developed over the years and the case law. And the third issue, whether the control actually requires shares, looking into the newest um, Finnish case in, in, in this area. So right now for a little bit change of pace, uh, what we refer as a dessert, so stepping away a little bit from the procurement subject in itself, but staying within some of our academic life area. We wanted to chat a little bit about uh, online conferences. So the concept, of, as, as Villa mentioned at the very beginning today, we miss the conferences, we miss the conference dinners, but at the same time, there was a really... Uh, uh, starting a development in the online webinars, conferences, and so on and so forth with, uh, of course, mixed outcomes. Some of them are better, some of them are not so great. So um, the, the the reason that I want to particularly to chat about it is because I, I participated this week in a really, really good online conference. And I need to say that uh, looking how how we learn all and develop within this area, uh, I, I can see this actually having a great advantage, meaning more dissemination to our work and also for us much easier access to, to, to great events, not to mention the whole sustainability uh, element of that. So, Willem, from your experience, we I think we both have been teaching quite extensively online right now. We also participated in different events. What makes uh, this interaction, online interaction, successful? What you, would you learn, you think, uh, or what you noted good practices in, in recent years? This year, pretty much, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, I'm I'm very excited to hear about this conference of of yours in a sec, because um, you've mentioned it twice now, so you've got my attention <laughs> definitely. Um, uh, I I think it's uh, if if I would have to summarize it, it's all about human connection. So I find that the the events that are very good, or the events that are actually uh, that get my attention, that keep me engaged, that don't allow, that force me basically to pay attention, that uh, in which I won't start doing emails at the same time whilst I'm participating, because that's very tempting, um, it is the ones that have a clear human connection. And I find that within those um, uh, conferences, people uh, 
leaving all technical issues aside, right? But I find that there's a couple of key takeaways that I have is people actually ask questions with audio. I think even though um, chat boxes are great for massive events, I do find it takes away any type of nuance, any type of fun. No, there's no interaction that can lead to any type of synergy. So I think that's a, a killer in, in, that, in that sense. Um, so try to get people to use their audio. Um, try to stimulate people to get their cameras on. And I do find that clearly stating that in the beginning already helps or at least showing, look, it's very difficult to get keep to stay motivated if I can't see people, right? And there's one other aspect that I thought is very um, interesting is also to activate prior to the event, right? To provide networking connections prior to the event by having uh, not just a list of attendees, but maybe to ask people what they're trying to get out of the event, right? Or what their learning purpose is, or is it to get in touch with people or because they want certain content questions or because they're working on certain issues. You can easily in the registration form, add that and then distribute it amongst the participants uh, with, a, with a picture, with their contact details. Now, of course, make it compliant with GDPR and all this type of stuff, but activate them before uh, and one other thing that I, I noticed is if you actually get a specific question beforehand or a dilemma or a case or something that you can look at and think about before an event, which gets you in the thinking mode, I find that discussions at the event are uh, far way better rather than just rocking up and just, you know, you've just poured yourself a cup of coffee and you're like, okay, bring it on. It requires active participation. Um, and then I'll stop my rant, uh, is I find breakout rooms really well, uh, work really well. Mm. So whether it be concerns teaching or little, I, I find that the masses limits many people to, to say something, the same at physical conferences and breakout rooms make it a little bit smaller, a bit more tangible, better networking opportunities, better ways of everyone being able to share their, their, uh, their um, yeah, what do you say, their opinion or their input. Um, but maybe this is none of this happened at your epic event. So I'll pass it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that you made some really, really good points. And I do think that we're talking about online conferences, but a lot of this is also equally applicable to online teaching, training sessions, any type of online events. I do think that one main difference is that uh, it's much easier for a participant to be withdrawn, I think, in online meeting. You can just turn off your camera, mute yourself and, you know, go make yourself a tea and, and, and sort of not be involved. I think that when you somewhere physically, you sort of kind of for, forcing your participants to be a bit more involved. So, so you need to work a little bit harder here. And I do definitely agree with you about this camera on. I do think that for me is already a first indication if someone joins any type of meeting and they mute it and the camera is off. It's it's pretty much, I, I often feel like the main message is I need to reply to my emails. It's sort of expected for me to be here. So I'm here, you can see, but I'm not really. Um, and of course, with uh, more like uh, webinar seminars or um, conferences, it's a bit more tricky because you cannot kind of make anyone do those things. I do make a principle from very beginning uh, within my teaching to kind of say up front, this is a digital course, the course that I'm running right now that Dylan um, gave 
recently a guest lecture that we're very grateful for. But from the very beginning, yeah, establishing evaluations. <laughs> but um, but um, from the beginning was saying, look, this is you need to have a stable internet connection. You need to have a setup. You need to have a camera on. This is a course. This is not anymore, you know, a voluntary thing. It's not anymore crisis of pandemic. This is the structure that we have. You have time to get prepared. And I think that that made all the difference. Uh, I can yeah. see them. They can see me. We have an interaction, a very good point. Someone also have that when you make people do that, you shouldn't just lecture to them all the time, right? If that is also within conference, you cannot say, oh, everyone turn on camera and then I will just talk to you for 30 minutes. You need to foster some of that interaction. But to bring it back to this conference that I that I unintentionally maybe promoted so widely, um, it was a Make a Difference um, Tech and Learn with Technology conference that is uh, organized every year by um, my university, University of Copenhagen, and specifically the Faculty Center for Online and Blended Learning. I participated this year for the first time, and I need to say that amount of attention uh, that they put into it was very impressive. One of the things that I really like about it, and I think this is a little bit, you know, sharing some good practices, maybe for someone who will be organizing something, this can be helpful. Um, very simple thing, but what I thought made a, a lot of difference is that when we got the agenda for the conference, there was a little walking human sort of emoji next to some of the sessions. And uh, it was indicated and explained that when you see that, when you see that um, icon, that the expectation, this is actually a lecture. This is sort of more like lecture-like uh, presentation and you are more than welcome to submit in writing, you know, in a chat box um, question but that you are really encouraged to actually go for a walk. Because I think, you know, is this 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 thing about death park by Zoom meetings, right? It's that yeah. you sort of sit all day. The fact that you can consider things like that, okay, people can go for a walk. Another really nice thing that I got, I got a goodie bag before this conference with, you know, a little little sort mm. of uh, chocolate, chocolate and, helps. Yeah. you know, like bits <laughs> and pieces with a little bit like a, point of where is coffee break and, and where you should get yourself a coffee. And then within those breaks, they also organized using a different platform. Uh, it's, it's a type of like a massive breakout rooms and you see a different breakout rooms and you can yourself change uh, the room in which you are so you can mingle during the break also. Uh, so they, they, they did really good this part of, of, of uh, breaking, breaking it up. And the last point that I would make is also, if you want it to be a conference, this is like a bigger thing with more participants and you really want an active participation, I, I do think that you need to have someone that at the same time manages the uh, chat. I think this, for example, also on smaller scale in our teaching worked out quite nice, right? So Willem was teaching and interacting with the students. And then some of the students that didn't want to speak, I, I encouraged them to write questions in chat. But rather than sort of Willem breaking his line of thought, I just said from the beginning, I will take care of the chat to extend possible and I'll answer the question or we will come back to them later. So I think having someone who monitors what happens is yeah, really active good. Active moderator. It's yeah. essential. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It worked. I, I, I think it worked like a charm in, in the class that we taught together. Mm. But also the, 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 the classes that we teach for professionals at Utrecht University. It, it just, it takes off a lot of the burden of the, the speaker 
And it also allows participants to have a spokesperson for them, right? So it's not yeah. just you against the, the speaker who's supposed mm. to have the floor, et cetera. It actually, you have a person that safeguards the fact that you can ask questions, right? So a person that is legitimized to interrupt the speaker. Yeah. You know, Hold on, before you go to this next slide, let's look at this question of Marta because it's super good and blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and the last thing that, you know, I think we cannot undermine, and it's, and it's also difficult one right we spent a good hour before we started recording today on tech stuff and and i think the whole sort of technological part and we still didn't figure it out right but i think a whole technological setup for this event i think the worst thing that can happen and i've been to some two events basically there were huge events organized by governments and you know um big organizations that were streaming and a lot of interesting people. And ultimately we couldn't participate because everything was, you know, freezing, blocking and so on. And then we were, we were promised that, you know, the recordings will be submitted so you can at least join that way, sort of look through it. We never received them. I think that the text part is you just need to, you need to make that work. Yeah. So that's our longer-ish uh, rumbling on that subject matter. <laughs> but um, I think that's where we will wrap up. Thanks so much for joining us for a conversation on institutionalized cooperation, some of the outstanding issues, and some, our, some of our thoughts on online conferences, good practices, what has been working particularly well in, in this crazy 2020. Thanks so much for joining us. This was the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestecpodcast.com. 